Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. This is Jack. Today we have part two of the conversation with Mick Mulroy, former Defense Undersecretary for the Middle East. If you have not heard part one, check it out in the episode list, or I will have a link to it in the show notes. This was a great interview, and I think you're going to have a lot of fun and a lot of interesting points from the conversation. So enjoy part two of the discussion with Mick Mulroy. You know, I spent a lot of time with the Kurds in, in both Iraq and Syria. That's one thing that was very obvious to me is they have a very progressive view of females in their leadership, in their capacity, in every sphere, from the military to diplomacy, to intelligence, to everything. They, they set themselves apart in a good way. Right. Yeah. I, I like the Kurds. I've, I've always felt like we should support them more in their policy goals. I mean, I'm not saying cut a chunk out of Turkey and Iran right. and give it to them. But that was one of the things when I was at UCOM and Syria was going bad. I was one of those that was promoting a secure a zone around Jordan and southern Turkey, a no-fly zone, a protective zone to allow people to stay in those areas and then provide support and security and protection so that we wouldn't have had the massive amounts of migration into Europe and Asia. Yeah. And also, I think it would have helped protect and stabilize the region so that as the conflict and civil war continues, it would have been better contained. I agree. Like you, I'm not advocating for carving out any parts of countries. Although I think the Kurdish region in Iraq, inside the government of Iraq, was the right step. And, and certainly continuous support to the SDF, which is the group that was primarily responsible for the defeat of ISIS in Syria. It right. is in the U.S. national security interest. And to the point I made earlier about good partners, we stay partners. It isn't just to use them for a specific thing. And then, you know, they turn around and the U.S. is bailing on. All right. Which uh, they complained about. <laughs> yeah, and they had enough, I mean, it led to, quite frankly, the resignation of Secretary Mattis, as you might recall, yeah. uh, who was, uh, you know, exceptional secretary, in my opinion. But we need to be partners, to stay partners. There's always a balance. We're going to balance between Turkey. Turkey's a NATO ally and very important ally. So I'm not making this a black and white thing. Sure. Uh, but the U.S. in in our ability to be the partners that we would want, we need to look at it that way. It's also long-term. You never know. So if you look at the Kurds in Iraq, we supported them when Saddam, right? And then when we decided to go into Iraq in the war, they were the number one uh, partners that we already had on the ground and were exceptional. They basically came to the Northern Front, right? Because we couldn't get the 4th Infantry Division in through Turkey, right? right. So, I mean, I was there when we had to go tell them, it's like, hey, you remember that Infantry Division coming? <laughs> yes, I'm coming. Yes. <laughs> like, you know everybody that's here, right? I mean, they were very stoic. They basically said that we're going to need a lot more ammunition. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> we can do that, right? But, um, but, you know, that if we didn't have that relationship, they might have gone, you know, good luck to you. You you got, you know, six ODAs and a bunch of CIA paramilitary. Good luck with 13 divisions of, you know, Republican Guard. But right. they did. They said like, all right, line up, let's do it. The partnerships that developed before are what build that then. You can't just, okay, our, our mission here is done. So, you know, we'll call you next time there's a catastrophe. That's just not how individual relationships work. It's also not how the relationship between nations should work. We need to be the partner that we would want in another country. Right. And to your point, I think that that's what's happened with Ukraine. 
is that we spent years building that partnership, training together, operating, learning Intel together. And so when something did happen, we came out with a decent solution. I mean, they're fighting their war. They need help. We are helping them. And that's pretty much the most we can hope for with the partners, that they don't just collapse and then leave a mess for everyone else to clean up. You're right, Jack. That's a great example. Not only have we trained them for many, many years before the invasion of Russia, but we trained them in our method of warfare. Yeah. Right? Before, they were very much Soviet-oriented because they were part of the Soviet Union, of course, but they hadn't really gotten away from that until we really started training them. And then it went from the, the general makes all the decisions and everybody else is just cannonball to our way of fighting, which is powering down decision makers to the senior officer and NCOs. We've got commander's intent. Modern warfare moves too fast to wait for the general staff. It just doesn't work. So they switched. Not, not just, you know, maneuver warfare, combined arms, but also the way they actually did decisions into all, you know, your conventional forces showed itself to be the right way of doing business. From the initial invasion till today, when it comes to the Ukrainians, you know, a David Goliath kind of situation here, not only holding their own and defying every military analyst I know on TV, really putting the Russians in a dilemma right now because they can't figure out a way to win conventionally on the ground. Well, they keep chopping off leadership's heads because they know from tactical opportunism, you cut off the leader, you're not going to get any action from the troops. Exactly. And they're completely untrained and no morale. They had them somewhere concentrated, a bunch of troops, like 100 plus in one warehouse or something, and really good intel, hit it. And so they're over 100,000 dead right now. That's, I mean, incredible. It's like almost twice as many as we lost in Vietnam. And this is because of their complete failure from immoral and incompetent leadership all the way down to conscripts that are basically just criminals. Right. One of the things that has been a focus of my life is corruption as a national security threat. This has been a great example of how kleptocracy collapses its support systems. I mean, we kind of saw it with the Afghan government and the Iraqi government when they collapsed against their opposition. But this is the first time we've seen it from an adversary who funneled all their money to their cohorts and they just kept it versus building a perfect structure. And the action that it causes collapses everything that your nation is hoping to gain because Mm -hmm. of the short-term goal. So it's been an excellent example of that. Can we switch over to discuss China for a little bit? Sure. There's been discussion that China is reaching its political and economic peak, that because of the way they've restructured their economy, To be more centralized, they've stopped allowing external capitalization of their companies, basically taking all the money flows and running it through the CCP. Mm -hmm. It's causing their economy to peak. It's not going to grow at the levels that were expected. And at some point, the concern is, is that China's ambitions are going to come up against those constraints, and it's going to make them desperate. They're either going to look for a military solution that causes them to still look like they're making gains to their public, mm-hmm. or they're going to start using more coercive actions against neighboring countries and other countries that they already have some Silk and Road style arrangements with. And so it's a concern that it's going to create more instability globally. And as I've heard people talk about this risk, 
I've never heard anyone talk about how we should be shaping policy in preparation for that. How do we work with our partner nations? How do we do our Hamisi levers in order to create the conditions to where conflict is a terrible option for China? And the best option, of course, is to come to the table and negotiate. How do you see us working the levers of government and policy to make that happen? Sure. So first of all, I agree with your assessment, uh, 100%, all the way to the in your question. I do think it's incredibly important to point out that when we have strategic competition, that we still have to realize that it's a global economy, right? And, and I'll start with, I'm not a China expert, nor am I an economist, but the competition shouldn't look like a UFC fight, where the, at the end of it, your competition is like buried in the mat. <laughs> and unconscious, right? Because think about what that could do to the world economy, including ours, right? I live in Montana. You can go down to the store and a lot, most of the stuff was made in China. But a lot of it we need, you know, it's not just nice to have. So it's important to realize competition is we would like the United States to be in a better position than our competitors and to do well, but it's not a death match, nor do we actually want a conflict with China. I think in some ways we have overestimated uh, the capabilities of China. I know we do that for a reason because it's better to prepare for the 40 foot tall monster than the five foot tall one. Because right. when you go to war, then you're like, oh, wow, these they're not really as advanced as we thought they were. But they are putting a lot of their money into new investments. It's right. important we don't underestimate either. But we don't want to war because it's not going to work out. It's going to destroy the international economy and it's going to be God awful. And it's also would be a war between nuclear superpowers. You can't really win because if you beat them to a point where they feel that their very existence is in, then they're going to use the ultimate option and it's curtains. Right. You haven't spent any time looking at the consequences of even a regional uh, contained exchange of nuclear weapons to the world. You should because it's catastrophic. Well, there's really no such thing as a regional exchange of nuclear weapons because it's going to alter the globe. Exactly. It affects the globe. So, I mean, we just need to make sure that we don't miss those two things. The complete destruction is not good for the United States. The military conflict, although I think we would be successful, will never end up fully successful because they have the option of going nuclear. So we don't want either of those things. So then what is it that the United States needs to do? Well, I think... Building alliances and partners is how the United States operates the best. And I know until recently, people were poo-pooing NATO, which is, I think, the most significant military alliance in world history. Putin, of course, caused the very thing that he was concerned about, right? So he was concerned about NATO expansion. He invades Ukraine. NATO's expanding. Finland and Sweden avoided joining for the entire Cold War, the entire Cold War, but now are joining and they're both very capable countries. Uh, what should we do when it comes to an aggressive China in that region? We should build capable alliances. So it's not just, I want to befriend the United States because they're the biggest military in the world, which we are. They need to invest in their own. And they are. I mean, Japan recently announced that they're going to start building a significant military, something that's actually going to require a change in the constitution. South Korea, obviously Australia, New Zealand, some of our key partners. We need to build that alliance. We need to not be afraid as they grow and they are more aggressive. Maybe the way I would put it is, uh, you know, talk softly, but carry a big stick. We need to build a big stick. Rattle in the cage for war, that's stupid. But we do need to have straight up direct diplomacy. 
And uh, when we think that they're being hostile to us, so we need to be ready. If it comes to like Taiwan, for example, they can see what happened to Russia in a country that's right next to them. It doesn't have a hundred and something mile gap that they're going to have to do an amphibious assault, right? And Russia has failed miserably. So they see that a capable Taiwan of the most advanced weapon systems and support from the United States, which is required by law in the Taiwan Relations Act, I think it'll get them to put the point where they'll say, it just isn't worth it. I mean, they are pragmatic. Uh, but then we also need to remember that we need to work together because this is a uh, purely global economy. And quite frankly, for those that are worried about climate change, and, and I think you should be personally, you can't really do much about it without China. If they, if they opt out, then we could be the greenest country in the, in the world, and so can Europe and a lot of countries. But if China doesn't participate, we're still going to have a significant problem getting to where we need to be. So we need them as a partner and not somebody that just says, you know, the hell with it. We're going to use up every resource and pull out the world. That actually reminded me of the quad negotiations that have been ongoing with India, Australia, Japan, U.S., right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I spend more time in the Middle East, obviously. But that is what I'm talking about. So good point. That's that's what I think we need to be doing. I'm not trying to be political one side or another. But if we develop you know, an alliance in one administration, we should not just destroy it in the next. How are we going to ever do it again? I mean, if our partners aren't going to want to hear, well, you know, we just changed political parties. So we just broke our word, broke our promise, terrible partners, terrible allies. That's not the way it's going to work for the good of the United States. Right. So again, that has to be something that I think both sides of the aisle need to take into account that we need to get back to politics stopping at the water's edge. Right. Well, Ian Bremer brought up a lot of good points on this. He said, even though there was a lot of political wrangling about alliances and agreements, Overall, the U.S. has been pretty good on appreciating and respecting what the last administration did and then forwarding it. For example, the current administration has continued with the prior administration's policies on China. The overall consensus from the USG and its advisors was we need to change and to make these things happen. And it's just been subtle inches of change, not massive dynamic changes, even though it, it looks massive on the outside because you got to show politically that you're doing something. But what I found is that most of the time, it wasn't the large policy changes. It was the alignment of policy to on ground where there was gaps because you have people in the middle. You know, and everybody has a perspective of what is reality and what ought to be reality. And so it's the challenge of making sure that that policy and the national security strategy has enough focus to where that policy lead at the bureau or at the theater command all see the goals clearly and then know how to apply it in order to make that happen. Yeah. And truth be told, I listen to Ian Bremer all the time. It's where I get a lot of my info on the Far East, right? Because like as I mentioned, I didn't spend a lot of time there. And, and I think a lot of people do because he, he really knows what he's talking about. But to your point, I would take that and say, be an advocate for what I saw sometimes when I briefed the Hill and what I was told by people who did that you know, far before I did, that it used to be very collaborative between both parties in the foreign relations committees, for example, about developing strong policy for the United States, for our key identified you know, adversaries and our objectives, and not trying to always score political points one way or the other, right? Right. 
there should be a lot more closed door discussions of which the poor sap that has to brief isn't like there to get massacred. And when it is closed door, TVs come on, to be frank. Right. I mean, everybody becomes friendly again. Uh, and then it becomes more about, okay, what is it that the United States really needs to do? Why is this what you're telling me you want to do advancing? That should be a lot more of that, a lot more of that, right? Sure. And, and the staffs up there, I think, also do a really good job of seeing that. You know, so oftentimes we go up and just brief the staffs and then it's really less theater, if you will. Right. But that, I think we need to get back to. I like to see us do that on all policy, but I'm just talking foreign policy here. But foreign policy, especially. Even the smaller policy changes that you referenced, which have a profound effect, have been thought through and had the input of all that have a stake, which is both parties, both sides of the committee, so that it's strong going forward and doesn't change necessarily much at all between shifting of who's ultimately in charge. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, that struck me, listening to about the integration and policy, has the NSC become too much into the integration of agencies? Do you think that there should be more cross-agency coordination, or do you think that we should be more focused on the NSC being more of the interagency coordinator? So I think in its best role, that's what it is. And I think there's been certain times in our history where the NSC almost thought it was another policy branch, your State Department and the NSC. Really shouldn't be that way. I mean, they're to facilitate the meetings of the interagency and then collectively make decisions, preferably at a lower level. So every, every decision is made by the principals, which they don't have time to do. So, and then if we have disagreements, they note it and then it keeps going up until somebody makes a decision, ultimately it's the president, right? But you don't want to have everything land on his, his desk as, or her in the future because they don't have time for that. So I think the best thing the NSC can do is to be the facilitator of that process. And I'll just give a plug to General McMaster when he was there. I thought really did that. He viewed his job as to get people in there, have fact-based discussions, have strategies developed, and then make decisions at the levels of the agencies and departments that have a say in policy. Sure. I just bought his book. <laughs> it was my Christmas gift to me. <laughs> he did a good job there. Would you like to describe the Lobo Institute a little bit? Um, it was founded by myself and my business partner who grew up right here in Whitefish. That's why we're in Whitefish. He was like, I got one rule. It's got to be in my hometown. And if you ever come up here, you'll go, sounds like a good rule, right? This is like I mentioned before we started, this is uh, like a, a retirement place for a lot of military and intel folks. And it's gorgeous. And there's a reason for it. It's just, uh, but anyway, so we, we founded it here. Uh, and his name's Eric Ulrich, former um, uh, SEAL officer, was a uh, squadron commander in JSOC. It's one of his last jobs, just an exceptional, talented military officer. And we started it, but Lobo Institute isn't just guys that are paramilitary guys and SEALs. We deliberately look to get people who ran NGOs. We have people who were in the UN for 30 years. We have people that were former child soldiers. We have people who were Syrians and multi-ethnics and uh, groups and multinationalities, all that come together to try stopping conflicts from happening, ending conflicts that are currently happening and dealing with those that are most affected by them, right? So we 
We have advised the United Nations, we advise the State Department, we teach at colleges and universities, we run projects for humanitarian groups. We put the team together based on what expertise uh, is really uh, needed. So it's kind of like a cabal of people who really want to be involved in those three areas. And the last area, those most affected, we have an NGO 501c3 called In Child Soldiering, which really came from a documentary that Eric and I and some others did. Mark Rosenberg, a friend of mine, has since passed, did on a child soldier who was a forced combatant in the Lord's Resistance Army. And his story was just so phenomenal. And, and his wife's, who was also an abducted child soldier, just perseverance through the most incredibly horrendous things that were done to them. They started a family in the, in the bush, as they call it, and they both escaped and they went on to become really instrumental, especially in Operation Observant Compass, and both of them in taking orphans of the LRA. And people had nothing, still offering everything they had to uh, people who needed it. So they're just incredible people. And an author in Montana named Mark Sullivan, who's an exceptional guy, started the Peace Corps, but he is doing the book based on uh, Florence and Anthony. And he is funding our NGO. Little horses there. Oh, no problem. We've been talking for. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's running, and it, you just, if I get talking about this, you're eventually going to cut me off because it's, it's <laughs> a passion project of both of ours. Uh, but he's writing the book right now. So it'll be out in a year. And he has uh, graciously agreed to send a sizable portion to fund the NGO. The nice. NHL. Nice. And that NGO sponsors groups all over the world. It is just so everybody knows, nobody takes any salary from the NGO. We have uh, D. Worth, who spent an incredible amount of time in the UN on the issue of children in armed conflicts, and she knows every group. So we fund the ones that do the work to rehabilitate and help these kids that uh, generally nobody cares about because they're in a country that people don't care about, and they are the part of society that even those in that country don't care about. So thanks for letting me plug that, but it is an incredibly important problem that has been exponentially increasing around the world as more and more adults like to start wars and then have kids. One thing I've noticed is that the same tactics that were used for child soldiers is now being used for cocoa production, where they're abducting children, they're keeping them drugged. You know, instead of fighting, they're cutting cocoa pods. Right. A friend of mine, Jordan Harbinger, just interviewed folks about that. And Absolutely. It's, it's an ongoing issue that... I've started to start fo to focus on, and that is that transformation from exploitation for child soldiering to enslavement for economic production. It's it's the same animal. It's just it's just not as glamorous because there's no fighting going on. It's usually on the kids, right? So they get addicted right. to the very drug, and they have no future. Nobody cares about them, and quite frankly, for the same reason, they use them as soldiers. Uh, they don't eat much, they don't complain, and they don't have anybody to complain to. And right. they tend to follow adults. I mean, that's the thing, nature of a child. They do what they're told, most part. Yeah, they're abducting them out of Mali. I grow concerned that Africa is just becoming a, a slave market for its for production. Yeah, a new form of slavery that should be equally condemned as the, the old. And it's up to the modern industrial countries uh, that have the clout. Uh, right. And it's, you know, it's not just going and waving your finger at, you know, these specific African countries, it's it's cutting off the demand. Yeah. It's both. And sometimes these kids are being used by wealthy countries, and that's unacceptable. And there's a lot of 
the Child Soldier Prevention Act, which is passed in the United States overwhelmingly, I think it was like 100%, like who would vote against it. Uh, we need to enforce that. You know, if you can't support the human rights for children, I mean, geez, you know, <laughs> I mean, what else is there? You know, as a society, if you can't promote the, the welfare of the next generation and children, for sure, right. then you're basically failed from the get-go. So I, I would hope that people would at least push their representatives to carry out the UN protocols that we've signed on to, the laws that we've actually passed in the United States. A, large, a lot of it came out of the LRA conflict in the Operation Observer Compass because it was got to be so well known and supported right. by you know both sides of the aisle. Absolutely. And it's, it's one of those things that was a slow movement, but came to the right right place. And now you're right. We have to enforce and monitor because those things can come back. We, we were seeing that at the end of Observant Compass is that there was always these little sparks they had to monitor. And, and we were, you know, soft was working with local government to patrol and, and make sure that people weren't getting, you know, children weren't getting snatched, that they weren't finding drugged people in the, in the bush. Right. Uh, all the indicators that would cause early, the early signs of like the LRA or a, another similar group growing out of it. Exactly. That's a good example of some of your old profession of using influence in a way, because quite frankly, in our observant compass, you know, we had a lot of agency folks and military soft folks from AFRICOM. Uh, nobody wanted to fight them, right? I mean, they wanted to fight a child alone. Uh, so it was more about just getting them to quit. And that had a lot to do with influence and the, the good kind of propaganda. Uh, that's also something that Anthony, uh, the individual, Anthony Opoka, the guy that I've been referencing on the documentary, he helped with because he knew them better than anybody else. He was one, right? Right. And I was there as a, the agency uh, station chief. But everybody and all the diplomats, because you know they played just as important role from Ambassador Delisi and all the ambassadors that were there at the time or followed him and preceded him. They should be proud of because it ended a significant toxic force to so many people in part of Africa in a way that tried to significantly minimize bloodshed for right. Our history. Right. Yeah. I have one more question for you, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, you brought up the Lobo Institute's efforts on reducing conflict. Mm-hmm. Now we've seen from you know Wagner Group and others that a lot of these authoritarian regime strategies are to do the exact opposite, where they encourage conflict and they encourage chaos in order to steal resources, bypass rule of law to steal money. They're actually creating ways in order to use conflict for their own advantage and long-term conflict so that it keeps foreign support out of the area. South Sudan's a great example of this. Yes. And I have to admit, I've, I've got friends that are at the Century, and they've done a great job of using you know, satellite imagery to, to constantly harass, I can't remember his name, the dictator of South Sudan, by spotting atrocities and reporting them to the UN and keeping the pressure on them. But how do you see overcoming that type of obstacle of, of a opposition that persistently wants to create chaos in order to counter what you're trying to do with stability? Sure. This is a multi-pronged answer, but I'd start with this. Yes. From the Lobo perspective, I'm just one. So I speak for myself. It's more of a collective group of peers. There's no like the hierarchical structure. So I don't want to make sure this is me speaking when it comes to that part of our mission. 
the way I look at it, reducing conflict, one is educating people on conflict because it, it sucks. People have to, to fight in it. And obviously the people that are living in it, it's bad. It's, it's not a good thing and it's nothing to, to romanticize. But we have to be ready because we're not the only ones making the choices here. And that also goes to the fact that when we're ready, the fastest way to end a conflict, quite frankly, is to win. Maybe there's a Marine in me, but it's, <laughs> look, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to have a bar fight, but if you really need to have a bar fight, we're going to ready a bar, for fight. bar fight. I'm also Irish. So, you know, you, you combine <laughs> those two things and we're always preparing for bar fights. It's like part of our, uh, genetic makeup. I can say that. But so, I mean, in all seriousness, you, you got to be ready to win. Right. right. So we also, you know, one thing Lobo does, we teach uh, tactical courses up here that are very specifically tailored for that purpose. And then to try to prevent, you know, we, we really push for how do we avoid conflicts for all the reasons you really aptly said. Some countries just spawn it. They want it to continue. They don't care about the consequences. They keep nation states in perpetual poverty, Yemen, for example, uh, just because it's like their preferred form of warfare is to fight over there and through proxies. You know, we're still going to have conflicts. Uh, so those are the things that I think that we do when we focus on conflict. And we don't just do it from the, the commandos perspective. If you get on our list of experts, uh, you'll see that, yeah, there's some there's some military special operations folks and intel folks. But there's also uh, deliberately, you know, folks that play the diplomatic and the, and the charity and in, in, in all sorts of other areas that deal with the conflict in a way that's not just combative. Right. So it's kind of like chasing an arson. You contain the fires and then you close in on the arsonist to where they yeah. have nowhere else to burn. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, especially up here in northern Montana. Which <laughs> We're like a smoke jumper. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, great, Mick. This has been fantastic. So I'm going to yeah, close it out. <laughs> But do you have any last thoughts before we hang up? Oh, this, this has been a great discussion, Jack. Thanks for having me on. If anybody's interested, LoboInstitute.org, that's our group. And it's more of a collective. It's not like any kind of company. You know, we we told some people our business organization at first, and they're like, man, you can tell you guys don't know anything about business. But it works <laughs> over. So it is, uh, it's going well. But no, I've, I've had a great time, Jack. Love to come on again if you ever want me. Well, there you have it. First, I want to thank everyone for listening. Second, a big thanks to Mick Mulroy for coming on the show. It was a great conversation. The 1CA podcast is a product of the Civil Affairs Association. Our goal is to bring you insights and skills and tips and tricks for engaging the last three feet of foreign policy. If you have a story to tell, I'd love to have you on. If you want to take a swing at guest hosting or editing shows, send us a note at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have that email plus links to articles, books, mixed bio, the Lobo Institute, this show, the CA Association, and anything else I can find to help you out. So once again, this is Jack Gaines, 1CA Podcast. We'll see you next week.